morning. Thanks for you watching online. Uh, I'm Matthew Lee, pastor here at Grace, and just want to say uh, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for those who you invited to Back to Church Sunday. Um, I want to start out this morning with a verse from Paul to the church of Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. It says this, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all. Now think about that just for a second. It, it was God's purpose in, in all this to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all. There are many things people can and have pointed to about the church that causes them to shake their head at the church and simply walk away from the church. In our culture, particularly in this past season of COVID, this season of uh, political tension, cultural issue, tension, I find people are looking to the church and trying to get their head around the church and how they are to respond to the culture and if they want to be a part of it at all. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, famous popular sermon... Matthew chapter 5, verse, 20, verse 13, asks this question. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? In other words, if the church fails to live up what God has called us to be, how can we be made salty again? And that's really the question, and this idea of, what is the church to be about? How can the church be salty in our culture? And I want to ask you, if, just to challenge you maybe, if you want to know what people are thinking about the church, ask them. Just take a minute, ask your friends. Ask your family members, ask your co-workers. What do you think about the church? What's it like? What's it missing? If you were going around and your friends, what do you think they would say? There's this underlying question that we should be asking within the church. How can the church regain its saltiness in our culture? People seem to be so disappointed with the hypocrisy of the church. People uh, saying one thing, maybe on Sunday morning or at a Bible study, and then living something totally different. Or, or maybe people are disheartened with the idea that the church just seems powerless in our culture. Another disappointment that I hear is that the, the church really doesn't look anything different than the culture. They're living and pursuing the same things. And so you have to step back with a, a verse like Ephesians 3.10 that God's purpose for the church was to display his wisdom in the world. Now, I know this is the sermon that you wanted to hear for Back to Church Sunday. But I think you will see that Jesus has great plans for the church. And God's plans hasn't changed for the church. So we can't give up on the church. Karl Barth, a theologian, um, was around the same time as Dietrich Bonhoeffer during the, the Confessing Church era. 
Uh, he says this, The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Barth says that the church exists to show the world, the culture out there, a different way that is full of promise and invites people in. So God is setting up through the church a contradiction to the culture, but one that's full of promise and invitation. And so this morning I want to talk about the role and function of the church with that thought in mind. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for the people that are here, the people that are watching online. God, I thank you for uh, the songs we sang already, the encouragement we felt from one another by just seeing them, shaking their hands, getting a hug. And God, we come to this part of the service where we open your word and we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit in all wisdom and all truth. That you would give us clarity and understanding about what your church is to be about. And then help us remember and realize that you have given us your spirit to live out what you have called us to do and who to be. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear from the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. What is the church to be about? Why does the church exist? How, how would you answer that question if somebody asked you? What's the church to be about? Parents, when your kids say, why do we have to go to church? What's your answer? Besides, because I said so. What's your answer deep down? Why, why do you come to church? I have found over the last several years that there has crept into worship services, church Sunday mornings, this idea of consumer mentality. In other words, it's almost as if people are coming to church with the same mindset as if they would go to the grocery store, the movies, a play, and, and they just kind of get to, uh, to be there, see what they like, what they don't like, how this thing tastes, how that thing tastes, and then they get to leave. Church is about them and what they want, and what they want to feel, and what they want to experience, and what they want to leave with. And to an extent, the church is that. But I think that there's a bigger picture in mind when God says He wants to use the church to display His wisdom in the world. So this morning, I want to take a look at three different areas uh, that the church is to be about. Worship, discipleship, and the world. But before I begin, I, I want to make sure about this one point. Some of you may be thinking... Well, is he talking about the church in America, the church universal, or me individual? So to illustrate this, I want you to take your hands and put them back to back and clasp your fingers this way. And then make sort of a little fist like this and just repeat after me. This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. So the church is the people. You cannot separate church and people. So if I say the church is about this, you can also mean that I 
am to be about this. So this morning, we cannot separate the church as a whole from the church individual. The church is the people, not a place. And you and I are those people. So what is the church to be about? The first thing I want to talk about is that the church is supposed to be about worship. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now there's two basic questions that I want to answer in regards to worship. And the first one is this, what is worship and maybe what it is not? How would you answer the question, what is worship? Two or three words that may pop into your mind. (laughs) Worship is mentioned over 180 times in Scripture. God, in the beginning, created us, wired us, if you will, to be people of worship. We will worship someone or something because that's how we're wired. God desires that we are worshipers of Him. Now this word worship is at the heart of God and should be at the heart of us. And it's this combination word, worth and ship, meaning that you have the quality or have the worth to be worshipped, that you give attention to. So when we worship in church setting, that we are saying that God has worth. So worship means to declare worth or an attribute to God. Now in the Bible, there's two kinds of expressions of worship. And the first one has to do with an act of respect or submission. In fact, the word picture for worship is the kneeling down, a getting on their knee, a putting one's face down as an act of respect and submission to the one being worshipped. Meaning, I'm bowing down, I'm laying down my life, submitting to what you want rather than what I want. The other kind of expression of worship in Scripture means not only to bow down an act of submission, but also an act of service that you're willing to obey. Roughly half the time these words are translated as submission and the other half of serve when you see the word worship in Scripture. Romans 12.1, your spiritual act of worship or service. So worship is more than a song. It's more than a feeling, an experience, a preference, an opinion, what makes you feel good or moves you. It's an understanding of submission and service. As best as I can summarize from Scripture and study and taking all these words, worship is surrender. Surrender to God's way, to God's life, and to God's relationship. So now that we understand what worship is, the next question is, how do we worship? You and I must put into practice the things that we know to be true. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, this passage, this one verse, contains uh, the essence of what it means to do and to be worship people. First, we see the motivation of worship is the mercies of God. 
we submit, we respect, and we obey because of the mercies of God. Think about what mercies and grace you have been shown. Eternal love, eternal grace, the Holy Spirit, peace, joy, a saving faith, comfort, strength, wisdom, hope, patience, kindness, honor, glory, righteousness, and on and on and on. We have been given the mercies of God. Therefore, our motivation is that He is worthy and we worship. They also give us a manner of worship, is that we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, presenting our bodies here, this word bodies here is not just our body. It's everything our body is about. Our thoughts, our plans, our attitudes, our futures, our past, everything about it. We present all of ourselves, everything we know about ourselves, and we present it as a living and holy sacrifice to God. We put it on the altar given totally to God. And how do we do this? By the renewing of our minds. We let our minds be transformed by God's word to remind us of what we've been given and the mercies of God. Therefore, our worship will be motivated by his mercies and be lived out through our lives. To know the truth, to believe the truth, to hold convictions about the truth, and to love the truth will naturally result in spiritual worship. Now, I want to stop and say something just a minute about music. When you ask people about a certain church or a certain idea of worship, generally speaking, people will say, well, the worship is good. And what they really mean is, those people can sing. And music is not worship. Music flows out of worship. Meaning that what we understand by the mercies of God, that because of that, music comes out. It's not parallel. They're not synonyms. Music and worship are not synonyms. So we look at music as an expression of our worship. True worship is the acknowledgement of God and all of His power and glory in everything we do. It means that we give everything, our entire self, over to God. One author said this, Worship should invade our lives, our entire lives. The test of worship is not only what happens at church, but what happens at home, on the job, and wherever we go. Every act of obedience is an act of worship. It declares that God has worth. In other words, God wants our worship to affect our behavior, that we make sacrifices, that we put to death the selfishness of our lives that we seek justice, be merciful, humble, and help others. We worship as we parent. We worship as we obey our parents. We worship as we talk, as we walk. And yes, we can even worship in the way we drive. 
Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Worship forces me to ask this question. Is God important enough to me to make a difference in the way I live? That's the answer to worship. I've always liked hearing oxymorons. Oxymorons are oxy or oxius, meaning sharp, and moros, meaning dull, where you heard people call each other morons or something like that. Hopefully you haven't called anybody that or been called that, but moron means somebody that's dull, sharp and dull. And I like these oxymorons, and here's, here's a few that I like. Freezer burn. Plastic silverware. Or, or I like this one too. Jumbo shrimp. But here's another self-contradicting oxymoron. Boring worship. How in the world can worship be boring when we think about the mercies of God? I want to suggest this morning that true worship is anything but boring because of who we are worshiping. Therefore, I urge you, church, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship is what the church is to be about. There's another thing the church is to be about, and that is discipleship. Listen to Matthew four eighteen through 22. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, discipleship, for some of us, has become a churchy word, a word that we just kind of toss around in church, but maybe has lost its value and lost its meaning. But in essence, what it means is what Jesus points out in these passages. Jesus says, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. In essence, that is discipleship. Now, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they all dropped their nets and immediately followed Jesus. And when they did, their lives were never, ever the same. But Jesus' call to those four guys is the same call he has for us. Come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Now, if you have your Bibles or if you're reading from an iPhone or iPad or whatever, I want you to look at verse 19 and the first two words that Jesus says. He says... Follow me. He doesn't say follow my ministry. He doesn't say follow this group of people. He doesn't even say follow this movement that I'm doing. He says follow me. And the reason I bring that up is probably an overstatement, but I want to make sure that we understand that disciples of Jesus follow Jesus. That we get to know Jesus. 
Now, these guys left their lives of familiarity. They left their nets, their source of incomes, their jobs. They even left their dad in the boat to follow Jesus. That was then. So what does it mean for us to follow Jesus today? Ultimately, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die to ourselves. Listen to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now watch this. At the same time, following Jesus is a call to die. It is also a call to really, truly live. We die to ourselves so that we can truly live this unbridled joy of life with Jesus. Now, these four fishermen dropped their nets. They dropped all their securities. They dropped even their identities as fishermen to follow Jesus. And following Jesus, just think what they learned and heard and saw as they followed him. The conversations he had, the power that he had, the demons he, he, he dispelled. They got to understand his heart for people, his sensitivity to his Father's will. And those are the exact same things we get when we follow Jesus. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know something to be true, and that's this. Following Jesus will take you places that you have never been. So following Jesus is supposed to be a little scary, a little crazy sometimes. Following Jesus is swimming upstream in a downflowing river. Following Jesus is countercultural. In fact, following Jesus is opposite to the world. Why? Because we're not of the world. One author said this way, Christianity and following Jesus is an out-of-this-world experience. Is following Jesus safe? Probably not safe, but it's good, it's right, and it's rewarding. Being a disciple of Jesus is costly. Why? Because Jesus alone determines what following him will look like. As disciples, we must be willing to pay whatever it costs. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that Jesus is out to call us to harm or destroy us. But I am saying that the cost and the idea of discipleship is letting Jesus decide what it looks like. We can't have control, and yet we like control. We don't call the shots. We can't predict the outcomes or even plan to protect ourselves. We are exposed and vulnerable all our lives by saying everything is up to you. And that gives us pause. And that's where real fundamental rubber meets the road discipleship of Jesus happens. Willing to follow him without reservations and without stipulations. One author said it this way, it is about losing the fear of following Jesus and replacing it with love and faith in Jesus. For centuries, people have literally died 
because they're following Jesus. Several years back, I came across these statistics. Since the death of Jesus, 43 million Christians have been martyrs. Over 50% of these were in the last century alone. More than 200 million Christians face persecution each day. 60% of them are children. Every day, over 300 people are killed for their faith in Jesus. My point is this, that following Jesus has a cost. Martin Luther said this, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. So what's my point? My point is this, the church is to be about following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus at any cost. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is that what they are seeing about the church? There's another aspect to being a disciple, is that means that you also agree to be a disciple maker, meaning that, like 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. It's a weak analogy, but it's an analogy that hopefully will stick. Being a disciple of Jesus is like a sponge. A sponge, in order for it to fulfill its purposes, has two things it has to do. The first thing is that it has to soak up stuff, right? But then what do you do with it? You have to squeeze it out, right? So it is with being a disciple. We take in all the mercies of God. We follow Jesus closely, understand his heart. Watch how he interacts with people. But then we take that and we squeeze it out. We, we give it out to somebody else who wants to be a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus says in verse 19. I will make you fishers of men. That's at the heartbeat of discipleship. Jim Putman and Jim Dennison in their, in their book Discipleship says this. When we evaluate the church... We must make the shift from just attracting and gathering to developing and releasing as well. They understand that they are ministers who serve whether they go into the world, wherever they go into the world. Success for the church means that we are training people in spiritual maturity so they can make more disciples. A disciple, a follower of Jesus, is concerned about the next generation. And I'm convinced that one of the areas that the church, universal, locally, and personally, needs God to revive is this idea of duplicating and discipling other people. Discipleship with Jesus is not meant to be done alone. You need someone, and someone needs you. There's a third thing the church is to be about, and that's the world. Jesus said this, in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. L let me start by saying, you may be already picking up on this, but if you're looking for this type of religion that doesn't call for too many demands on your life, one that makes you feel better when you're down and will reserve a luxury suite for you in heaven when you die, then maybe you need to reconsider what it means to follow Jesus because following Jesus will have demands on your life. God has this crazy countercultural idea that his followers 
should serve others rather than themselves. And it's not only what Jesus teaches, it's what he has lived out. It's the way he has loved us. And then he tells us to love others the same way that we have been loved by him. It's radical. And listen to this from Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be, my, be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This passage is talking about a radical love-hate relationship. And in our culture, I believe we're having a hard time coming to grips with what it means to hate and what it means to love. There's wide range of feelings, understanding, and definitions on both words. There's not a consistency, and therefore there's a lack of appropriate application. We're struggling in our culture right now what to do with hate, and what to do with love. We talk about hate all the time. We talk about love all the time. And because we abuse or misuse these terms, we haven't had a real grip on what either one is supposed to look like. When we say we don't like something and we didn't really get what we meant out, we say we hate it. We move it to a different level. Like, I don't really like Brussels sprouts. But then when you say, I really hate Brussels sprouts, it communicates something different. Or I hate this team, or I hate when you do that, or when you say that. Sometimes we hear people say that they hate politics or politicians, or they hate this cultural issue or that cultural issue. And biblically speaking, there are positive and negative aspects to hatred. It is acceptable to hate those things that God hates. In fact, Psalm 97.10, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Biblical hatred has to do with the things that God hates. And yet our culture kind of messes that up a little bit. God has this beautiful combination of hating things and having compassion and loving things. One author said this, Our hate reveals our love, and our love reveals our hate. Roman 12, 9, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. In our culture, we have come to understand that if I hate or disagree with someone, that automatically means I hate them. Or if somebody disagrees with me, that means they automatically hate me. 
And the other side of that coin, the reason I bring that up, is if I say I love you, then all, all of a sudden it means that I accept everything about you. And that may not be true. And you can love me without accepting everything about me. And so our culture is trying to get our hand and our hands are, and get a grip on what it means to love and hate. And no one illustrates this better and balances it better than Jesus. And our culture needs a church that balances love and hate like Jesus does. To be led by the Spirit in a no-compromising, compassionate, relational way of loving and hating the way Jesus did. Could it be that our culture is confused about love and hate because the church is confused about love and hate? The range of things that we love that we've given our culture is extraordinary. We say things like, I love chocolate. Oh, I really love sleep. I love my pet. I love my kids and my wife. I love this car. I love this team. I love this song. I love that song. I love Jesus. And all of a sudden, they all get lumped together. You kind of go, how, how did that fit into that category? Just as we have this surface level of hate, I'm convinced the church needs to examine itself and ask themselves if they have a surface level of love. This deep love. Our culture is aching for understanding of how to deal with the deep hatred and aching for people to respond with a deep love. The deep love Jesus talks about is Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's what the church is to be about. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. This literally means, I love this word, this word bestowed, uh, it, it literally means another out of this world kind of love. It means that you and I can't manufacture it on our own. It has to come from another source. It's not from around here. It's agape love. One, one uh, commentator described agape love as other-centered, sacrificial care. This was a radical teaching from Jesus to the first century Jews, and it's radical to us. Because I believe we need Jesus to do a heart change within us. To put the kind of heart within us toward our enemies that was in God, who sent Jesus to redeem and forgive a world full of despicable people. which includes me. God has a heart of love towards the loveless. Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Notice the progression. Love your enemies, do good, bless, pray. That's what the church is to be about. One author says this, On the cross, this is how Jesus treated his enemies. He treated them to the words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Many times, God has had to help me understand what loving people looks like. Loving people and love's goal is not about people coming around to my way of thinking and living. Love's goal is for all of us to come around to God's way of thinking and living. 
Verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Mercy is never justified. It's always freely given. So what is the church to be about? The church is to be about worship, discipleship, and loving the world. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all. And I'm convinced that God's plan has not changed. Here's what's really encouraging. To look out and see you, the church, and to look out those doors and think about Hilton Head and Bluffton, and to see the church released on our island and in Bluffton. People whose hearts are gripped by the worship of God who are committed to following Jesus at any cost and will love all people really well with the love of Jesus. That's what the church is to be about. A way that contradicts the culture and shows people a way that is still full of promise that draws people in. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your patience with us, your church. And God, we cry out for help and forgiveness. God, help us worship you in all areas of our lives because you are worthy. We are thankful for your grace and for your mercy. So help us be a people, a church, about worship. God, give us clarity on what it looks like to follow you at any cost, consistently, in all areas of life, giving you full control. God, I also pray that you would help us love well, that you would teach us to love as you have loved us. And we confess we need your help so that the world would see, as the song we sang earlier, that they would know us by our love. Help us with all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.